The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Wyatt Smith. And Wyatt Smith has cut things like Into the Woods, Thor 2, which are what we focus on this episode. But he's also cut things such as Nine, The Zen of Bennett, uh, Ricky and the Flash, which just came out. And he's currently working on Doctor Strange, or he's actually just in pre-production. So we actually don't go into Doctor Strange. Trust me, I really wanted to go into Doctor Strange. But, you know, he's just starting... It's pre-production, and he's not allowed to talk about it. So hopefully, uh, we can get him and Sabrina, who's also cutting on Doctor Strange, uh, back into the cutting room to discuss that when Doctor Strange comes out. In the meantime, we focus on his early career, which is crazy, because he's all about music and, and sound and how it works, and he ends up cutting for a lot of music videos and a lot of music documentaries. Uh, and he, then he moved into these massive big-budget films, such as you know, 300, Rise of the Empire, Thor, The Dark World, Pirates of the Caribbean. So it's quite an interesting journey that he's been on. So we have the whole interview here for you. And as some of you know, we've been trying to keep things more current. So usually in the past with The Cutting Room, we do sort of interviews with editors about their careers. And we're trying to make it more about what's currently coming out. And we've been having trouble getting permission from the various PR firms that handle the releases. So we're working on building those relationships. So they will sort of become more uh, current as we go in the fall. And as part of that, the release of Drunk History, the television show, uh, starts soon. And so as part of that, we're actually going to be sitting down with the entire editing team of Drunk History. So look forward to that next week. And of course, if you have anything that's post-production related, make sure to submit it at aotg.com. Of course, you can always use our plugins for the browser at aotg.com plugins. And of course, if you want to socialize with us, get us on Twitter at AOTG Network, on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash AOTG.com, and of course, dot spelled out. If you're interested in this podcast, you have questions or anything like that, you can always join us on the discussion forum on AOTG Network. Go to AOTG.com slash Wyatt Smith, and you'll be able to actually see the link for this podcast and the discussion forum and you can ask any questions bring up any points that you liked or discuss anything so in the meantime here's my interview with Wyatt Smith you have a very uh, varied career I guess you could say so you've you know you've done television features documentaries fiction mm-hmm. and I'm wondering can you start off by telling us how you got into film but also how you've worked to keep your career so diverse well, the main thing, I mean, as much as I'm trying to keep it diverse, it really has all stemmed out of music. And as much as I, you know, even at times when I try to distance from music, it seems to always come back there. I grew up in a musical family in the music industry. My father was a roadie when I was born and went through all forms of music management and stuff. And I kind of learned the music business. So I had an opportunity to, you know, when I, I college didn't really work that well with me. And, uh, 
I went to work at a recording studio that also happened to be a TV facility that Sony Music was building uh, on the west side of New York. And I kind of came up there learning editing, learning mixing, learning, you know, how to set up cameras for a shoot and all the aspects of production. And they mostly did music-based TV work, concerts. We did mostly MTV Unplugs there. And it was just a great place to come up and learn all the different parts of mainly music and and TV post-production. And that's how I found my way into editing. And I loved editing from the first day I had to do it. You know, I had been kind of teaching it and fixing it, but never actually doing it. And the first opportunity to actually get hands-on cutting I, I just thought it was amazing and stuck with it. And it's through that that I eventually got to features because I had built up a reputation as somebody cutting concerts and cutting music videos and music docs. And of course, other things fell outside of that. But then Rob Marshall was doing a TV special for Tony Bennett for NBC. And uh, he was looking for feature film editors, people he'd worked with before. He had just finished working with Pietro Squid on Memoirs for Vacation. He had his, you know, his whole list of you know, feature editors. But I had worked with the, uh, Tony Bennett and his family on several think, projects by then. And they also felt it was important that somebody who understood TV formatting and a little more multi-camera concert editing was more familiar with that, that Rob should kind of meet with someone in that world too. And I interviewed and we hit it off and we had a great project together. The special turned out great. It won seven Emmys, I think. And he basically said, hey, next time I make a feature, I'll take you with me, which I thought was very nice and I didn't really believe. And then uh, I guess it was about a year and a half later, he called me and said, can you be in London next week? And that was for nine, the Daniel Day-Lewis musical. So even though there's a lot of variation in what I've done, certainly now to date, it all came out of music, and even the film I just finished, Ricky and the Flash, manages to have the film be live rock music. It's, you know, I love music, but it, that seems to be the thread that isn't obvious, but it's always there. What would you recommend for younger editors who want to have that type of diverse career? Well, uh, a big thing is just look for the opportunities, because at every step along the way, even my first editing job, I mean, like I said, I've been kind of building and fixing and teaching editing stuff you know, kind of an engineer or tech around the studio. And uh, Mariah Carey had a concert special that needed to be edited, and they wanted it also, you know, she wanted something to cut overnight, and there wasn't really anybody around who was a familiar face. Uh, and I had known her from around the studio. And they're like, would you just go and edit as the overnight shift uh, in, like, the basement of her house or something? It, it sounds, you know, it's terrifying at the time. She's a superstar. I've never cut anything before as an editor or anything like that. But it's like, you know what? Yeah. Of course I'm going to do it. It's like when Rob called, I mean, he, for nine, I mean, truthfully, he called on a Friday. I was in London on a Monday. I came home really about 14 months later because even the director's cut was out in the Hamptons, which is where I live. It's where he lives. So, yeah, it's a huge, you know, take a big gulp and Lord knows what you're getting into. But uh, the important thing I'd say is recognize the opportunity and go for it. <laughs> you know? So you you said that you cut in Mariah Carey's yeah, basement many many years ago. <laughs> what was that like? Well, I you know my father at one point had worked with her management company with Tommy Mottola, who she was married to at the time. So like I said, I was a familiar face and trusted as somebody who they knew could be working in the house, even though I'd just be working on my own. It's where she had set up because she was working with uh, another you know her main editor during the day. But because they knew I wasn't a threat and could be trusted, like I was asked. Yeah. Yeah, just random random careers. Um, Other than the fact that for the brief time I did stuff for Mariah, she's incredibly funny and awesome. 
And what what have you taken from your experience in music and cutting music projects and live shows that uh, you use in your editing? Well, certainly rhythm and timing. I mean, I I don't know if it's just because I'm such a fan of music. I've never had a moment of my life where music wasn't somehow playing all the time. Uh, you know, I don't I don't put music to scenes I'm cutting until I feel that they work. Uh, at the same time, I'll never show them to anybody without music if I feel they need music. But the fact is, is you know, even when I'm watching dailies, I find I'm always there's some internal rhythm that's tapping out. And I think that comes from just having always being exposed to music and just the rhythm of the way people speak, and it all just feels very musical to me. Staying in the music vein, I'd love to ask you about Into the Woods and and your approach to cutting it. Mm -hmm. Into the Woods had multiple storylines sort of interweaved, and I was wondering, with all these storylines crossing over one another, how did you approach the editing process? Did you find you were able to sort of manipulate it more? Was this constant crossover a help or a hinder? Um, Well, it it helps and it hurts. Here's the great thing about Into the with is even though it's it's not like cats it's not like chorus line or layman's it's not that much of a household name yet i found whenever you bring it up people have heard of it or they've it's performed in schools a lot so there is a lot of familiarity there but more importantly the story of it is proven and it's one of Sondheim's most beloved pieces so it's nice to go into something where you know, similar like what Rob Marshall did with Chicago, there's this amazing blueprint of a very functional story that doesn't have to be tossed and reinvented, um, or you don't put it together and suddenly realize, you know, that it's got massive holes and mistakes to it. So, you know, so much of the interweaving of those stories is in its DNA, it's built in, that even that opening number, you know, the prologue, which is like 14, 15 minutes long, all that weaving and intersecting of characters is naturally there in the places they occur. And so we're not really going to break Sondheim and James Lapine's vision for how that was written together. That said, the problem actually becomes pace because the language is very complicated. It's like uh, you know, one of the things I always reference is when Cinderella gets stuck on the steps of the palace, she's not she's, she steps in tar and she's stuck in this black sticky tar, but of course the lyric is pitch, could spread pitch on the stairs. And it's like... It's never a simple language. It's always complicated. Or you get musical numbers like Your Fault, which is this insane wordplay of everybody blaming each other. And it's like a tongue twister for, for everyone singing it. And that's where there's, there's places where editorially, like your music video brain wants to put all these cuts in in this very exciting way because there are all these angles. And then the film brain wants to keep it as simple as possible because it's more cinematic that way. But you kind of have to weave the two thoughts to figure out how best to serve those lyrics. And, and Into the Woods, intersecting stories becomes a problem with pace because some pieces move too fast and some pieces move too slow. And you're constantly being pushed and pulled by the speed of the music, the intensity of the lyrics, and then what Rob was bringing to it, making it cinematic. So that actually became the greatest challenge uh, working with that music. And so it's great that the music all had a rhythm, but we were constantly opening up a few bars just to give pause, just to give you a moment to take in a visual or to let something that was said resonate. And so we were pushing and pulling and stretching the music here and there. But um, thankfully, the story of it, you know, we had a pretty strong map that was hard to change because it was etched into the music. So that's what, you know, that's kind of the biggest challenge on all of that, was just getting it out there in a way that people could take in. And did you have to manipulate any of the songs in any way to get them to fit a particular scene that you had cut or to fit a particular pace that you wanted? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's exactly the types of things. Like even in that prologue, you know, musically, the, the pre-recorded music that everyone sang to, there were no breaks between each of those little vignettes. 
you went from Jack and his mother right back into Little Red, right into, the, you know, and that those are places where we'd create little vamps and little transitions just because you needed to, okay, next story. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't just, you know, because literally, you know, some of those places, one word handed right off to the next and it could get really confusing. So, yeah, there's a lot of that manipulation. And the, and the other thing we did is you couldn't score the film. You can't tempt a, a musical with something else. You can only tempt with itself. So thankfully, Mike Hyam, who was our music producer, who'd worked with Sondheim before on Sweeney Todd, and Jennifer Dunnington, who was our other music editor with him, uh, they were with us all the time. So I definitely had help. But the key is, is we also took all those pre-recorded music tracks, which were eventually rescored. But but I had separations of everything I could possibly have here, strings, here's percussion, so that we could build and extend all these little musical beats using the language of Sondheim, because you couldn't just take music from something else when you needed to lead into a song or create a pause. It always had to be in the Sondheim language. So it's a little trickier than, than normal. Not to mention half of Sondheim's music sounds like Discord, and that's written that way. Yeah, so it's a, quite a headspace to get into. Well, it's it's funny because I remember seeing that the musical live, and when you showed the opening scene at uh, Edit Fest, I, I remember thinking back to the original or seeing it on the stage, and they basically just had a massive, I guess, wooden structure or curtain, and it looked like the baker's place, and you know the baker popped out of one window and sang his line, and then the Little Red Riding Hood popped out of another window and sang her line, and I think the boy with the cow right. walks out front. So it's all oh, they, they all just they all stood across the front of the stage and just sang at once, and it, that's why you know uh, the, that opening number was interesting because it involves so many different set pieces, so many characters. We just get little pieces here and there. It's not like that was not a complete scene until towards the end of shooting. So it's very interesting to see how it was going to work. And uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned at Edifest is we had designed it kind of like that stage show where uh and i actually went to set on each of the days that we were shooting for these triptychs where the the shots were meant to be kind of paneled next to each other so you'd have three different scenes on the screen at once kind of like the old mtm movies did with the intention that then you didn't have to do any cutting and each person would be singing their line on screen but we found it was even more confusing and also very inorganic it what it just didn't feel like a movie well yeah it kind of flows nicely right because it's like one leads into the next nicely now with like that sort of baker guiding us or the sorry the voiceover yes and well and and having the baker as the narrator because the narrator is his own character in the stage show as well he, he gets killed by the giant um but yeah it was that was also a great lesson on that too because we spent a lot of time working on those on those triptychs and you know really trying to make sure they were right where we use them in the right places where could we use them elsewhere in the film so it didn't feel like a one-off and then ultimately the day we scrapped them we were like oh those are never coming back and it's you know <laughs> it's interesting too it's part of it's part of pursuing every every option but uh it's great how the simplest thing wins if i remember correctly the the musical was much darker in tone did you find you have to you had to because you were working with Disney and it was much more geared towards sort of a wider audience, did you find you had to work on the tone and make it less sort of scary or? It's it's a little tricky. I mean, we, we didn't, we, we hardly declawed or defanged it. And I know that that was one of the big concerns, Disney making a Sondheim film. You know, truthfully, the only topic that was really sticky, well, I mean, there's two. One is, you know, in the stage show, the wolf is overtly a pedophile. He has a big, furry dick. And, you know, and it's very salacious because the, the, the other thing is, is, you know, on stage, Little Red and uh, Jack are always played by adults. So there's a comedy in seeing 
the wolf chasing after, you know, kind of an adult girl who's sassy and it's very bawdy and, and you just take it in because you're, you're, it's not nearly as threatening as when you're actually watching a, a child there. And I, I mean, Lilla at the time was 13 and Daniel, I think was 11 when we started shooting. So, uh, to see children in those roles is, is fantastic because it gets out of that kind of man child silliness and gets a lot more real and heartfelt. But suddenly that pedophilia element really lights up. So yeah. that's why, uh, that's why the wolf is presented in a zoot suit much more of that kind of Tex Avery was, I think, Johnny's inspiration for his, that wolf just trying to add a cartoon element to try to soften that edge a bit. Likewise, the other one that's tough is adultery is not really a big Disney theme. And the baker's wife, you know, on stage, she's rolling around on the floor with the prince. I mean, there's no, no question that they hooked up in that way. And, uh, you know, in the case of our film being that that was, certainly something that Disney was concerned about, although they really didn't get in the way of the film. They really let Bob make the film. But, you know, that's a kiss that's very, you know, that, that we see on the screen and we go away and we come back and they're still kissing. So the implications, that's all that happened. You know, that's, that's a bit of uh, softening for Disney, but I think all the morals and the lessons and the death and the consequence of those deaths, um, I don't think we softened any of that. That's all true at this stage. I, Emily Blunt was ironically pregnant during the making of this film. Yes. How did you, because uh, I'm assuming that they probably shot everything, but then you had to work around that. So what what was your process for that? I feel, I, I feel for Rob because when we did the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Penelope Cruz was pregnant. And, you know, that was a long shoot. So by the time we were done with the five months of shooting or six months of shooting on that, Penelope, rightfully so, was very pregnant. And there was a lot of action sequences, and that was very tricky. Um, I will say on Into the Woods, Emily, Colleen Atwood did some things with her dress right away. She changed her dress to be darker shades in the, in the abdomen so that it did, she didn't show as much. Um, the great thing about Emily is she has an incredibly long neck and these huge eyes that you know, just hit. I mean, you go straight to her eyes always. So the way she just even carries herself, she, you know, even when she was the most pregnant she was on her whole shoot, she still didn't really look that pregnant. So it was never an issue. I mean, I will say, yes, I'll admit there's one shot that we did blend her in because just the way the camera was moving around her, it was like, oh, pregnant. But for the most part, um, Emily herself and Wardrobe really took care of that. There was also a, a song that was cut from the film called She'll Be Back. And I was wondering oh, if yeah. you could tell us about the song and, and the decision behind removing it. Well, I don't know what the official politics of why it was created in the first place. I mean, I can only assume that if you were to think about awards and stuff, which we don't. But I mean, to, I think Disney wanted an original song for the film. And, and they asked Stephen Sondheim to write an original song and, and I can't remember the history if it's one he always kind of had in the works and never put into the show or if it's one that he created from scratch but uh, he created this great song which is She'll Be Back it's right after the uh, witch's lament which is when Rapunzel runs off with the prince and it's the witch basically saying to herself oh no 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 she doesn't know how good she has it with me and she's going to come back but ultimately by the end of the song realizing like oh maybe I haven't been the best mother and maybe she's not coming back so there is something wonderful to it in that respect and you certainly want you know the witch in in the film is, has a lot more depth and character than, than really existed in the stage show and certainly Rapunzel as well you have a lot more you care about that relationship far more but ultimately the third you know I consider the prologue the first act, up to the wedding, the second act, and then really the, the hard lessons to be learned, the third act. And that third act is like an entirely different film. On stage, it's your second act. You're able to leave the theater 
for intermission, come back and take in something entirely different in the film. It has to feel like part of the same film. And she'll be back, unfortunately, was putting a song, more importantly, a ballad, where you really didn't need one. And it was kind of choking the pace of the film. And we tried reordering to put it into a better place. And it was really not helping the pace. For me, a more important issue, you know, my issue with it was The Witch's Lament, one of the most heartbreaking lines in the whole film, to me, is um, children can only grow from something you love to something you lose. And that's a really, like, I think of my parents all the time. It, it, it breaks my heart every time I hear that I love my parents, but I know I don't talk to them enough <laughs> and all that type of thing. And every time that line came up, I really thought about them. And that is the end of The Witch's Lament. And now suddenly it went into this other song. And I felt like we, bur- we were burying the lead. We were taking this incredibly cold, amazing message that's very true to parents. I mean... What chokes you up at the end of Toy Story 3 is when the mother walks in the room at the end and realizes that her son is now going off to college and isn't living at home anymore. Like, that concept of this thing we love is gone. I felt like burying that in another song was not as strong for the film as letting that dangle there and leaving her standing there all alone. But we all kind of came around to it, and of course, uh, James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim came into the cutting room, watched it with, watched it without. They agreed that it wasn't helping the pace of the film and that it didn't need to be there. Uh, Meryl came in, screamed with, without. She also agreed, was willing to let it go because ultimately you got to serve the film, even though it is a brand new song by Sondheim with Meryl singing. It seems like an impossible thing to cut, but it had to go. Now, I'd love to talk to you about uh, comic books and uh, comic <laughs> movies like Thor. Uh, first, you got to tell Which me. Go what... right hand in hand with Sondheim. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess first, because we were chatting a bit on email about comic books, what comic books were you into? I started reading comic books in the early 80s, around when Frank Miller took over Daredevil. Oddly enough, uh, even though I was pretty young at the time, those were some of the first comics I read, and I really got into it. Uh, my father had always collected comic books, but there was, you know, it's that classic story where it's always like, oh, if you only knew the comics I had, your mother threw them all out when we moved, or something like that, you know. So that also kind of spurred me even more to want to read comic books, but I fell in love with them, and... Uh, you know, I've never been to a Comic-Con, but by the time I was, you know, 10, every Sunday, pretty much every month of the year, I would take the train into New York City because I lived in a suburb. And we'd go to a comic book convention and load up every dime I made from chores, went into buying comic books. And thankfully, still to this day, I have thousands of them. But it started with Daredevil. It quickly moved into Silver Surfer and Fantastic Four. Of course, there was X-Men, Wolverine. It was a pretty wide spectrum. And I did collect some DC comics, some, some Green Lanterns, some Teen Titans, Certainly Batman around Alan Moore periods, you know, Death in the Family and stuff like that. But really, it was Marvel and more importantly, going back and starting even at a, when I was a kid, just buying Silver Age Marvel. So I, I have a great collection of 60s and 70s Marvel. And did you ever get into the Image comics or was that just slightly after? It wasn't. No, the Image was a, was arriving. But ultimately, yeah, there was a point when I started working full time uh, that obviously... Even though I could finally afford the comics, I <laughs> there was no time to read or buy them. I was just trying to learn and have a career and and all of that. And, and it's funny that now, really only in the last couple of years, when I was working on the second Thor, I was working with Tim Miller, is now directing Deadpool. And I'm like, Tim, you know, I've been out of comics for ages. What are some things I should read that I haven't? And uh, the two comics he, he said, he's like, oh, you should read Powers and you should read The Authority. Powers, I guess there have been three series at this point, maybe 30-something issues of series. I mean, I read them all in three days. I just I ate them up. And now since then, I've started to collect and uh, read comics again. You know, it's like I even I had a post-it on my desk that August 12th was when The Fifth Secret Wars just came out meant to make sure I, I got it. They're digital. I'm not buying the print, but yeah, I'm, I'm way back into it. 
I want to get into Thor here, and so I'm wondering if you can give me sort of an overview of, I guess, how you got onto that project or started working on that project. Uh, Thor 2 uh, is an interesting one because, um, you know, Dan Leventhal, uh, who's, who's really, he's kind of the cornerstone of the Marvel editors. I mean, at this point, Lisa Lassick has obviously cut many films for Joss, and Jeff Ford has cut now. I can't, I don't think you can count how many films Jeff Ford has cut, but but Dan cut the first Iron Man with Favreau. He's Favreau's guy for years. And um, so he, there's something about his approach to humor and the action and just his general personality, which is incredibly fun uh, and collaborative, that just really sets the tone for a lot of what became the Marvel Studio films. And he's been back a few times with them since. Alan Taylor had been cutting the second Thor. Um, there were some, some story things that need to be worked on. Either way, they wanted a fresh round of editors. And uh, so Dan was brought on uh, to take a new path at the film. And uh, he was, you know, interviewing her, you know, because he knew he couldn't do it by himself. Years earlier, or not that much earlier, but... Um, I had gone to Marvel and begged. I took just an open meeting with Victoria Alonso that my agent set up, and I basically begged her to get onto Guardians, which at that point was filled out. But, you know, I think Victoria remembered that I was a comic book geek at heart. So when they were looking for someone to help Dan with the second floor, she put my name back in the hat, and I interviewed and got the job. And uh, that was an incredible amount of work because we, you know, Dan and I kind of inherited a film that wasn't quite working right and you know so sometimes when you step into that situation you can like oh let's just change this one thing and all of a sudden everything clicks into place and and it wasn't one that went that way it was one that needed a lot more work to get it on its legs and feel like the film that it became so that's that's how i came into it um it's really just about being a comic book geek and thankfully having met the right people at the right time so like what what was the schedule like? How much footage was coming in? Like, what was that sort of experience like? So Footage-wise, there was, you know, Alan had certainly covered, uh, you know, a lot of ground. <laughs> there was plenty of material to work with. It's a, it, but it's a tough question to answer because we weren't actually there for shooting. That's why Strange is exciting because I can actually work the, uh, on, on four Marvel from day one. What was the schedule like? Because you came on, if you've come on after, you have to go through everything and I guess... Yeah, start. well, that was, that was pretty intense. I mean, we worked six and seven days a week for pretty much four and a half months. I actually left. Uh, I had to leave in the middle of the final mix because uh, Into the Woods was starting, which was always going to be my own date. Um, so even then, I'd, I didn't see the final effects and the final mix, even on some sequences that I had a huge hand in, in creating. I didn't get to see them until the premiere in, as finished pieces. But um, Marvel has great attitude. You know, they, they know the work's going to get done. They know it's a lot of work. So they're complimentary, they're providing, and they never beat you up, you know, emotionally. They know, obviously, when you're working that intensely, when you're working, you know, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week for months, it's a grind, but uh, they make you feel good about it. And, you know, if, if bad news comes in, like, you know, visual effects is this much over budget, you got to cut stuff out, you know, because, of course, we're fixing story. We're not really focusing on what it's going to take to create all this stuff. And then you, you get that kind of nail in the coffin you know but i think victoria sang the number to us <laughs> you know so they always keep a very fun vibe to it because they know we'll figure out how to get it to cut down so um so yes it's really grueling it's long hours but when you're working with really nice people you, you don't mind i mean strange is the similar thing because i'm uh you know I'm going to cut that film with Sabrina Plisko. And I, just from my experience with them, and I keep saying to Sabrina, I'm like, you know, again, 
This is, it's beyond a marathon. There's never going to be a sprint. At no point in time should anybody be working so fast and furious that they're going to be wiped out in three days. Like, we have to be able to work at this insane pace for 11, 12 months. As a comic fan, you and I have suffered through the 70s, 80s, and 90s comic book films yeah. that uh, we all sort of know about. And I'm wondering, all of a sudden, we're getting this huge influx of really high-quality films. And what do you think it is that that's changed to make the films more doable because it's not just the effects because the VFX were there, you know, mid nineties and we still got some pretty rough films. What is it that's changed in that environment? What also changed is what started to happen in the comics themselves. Like Frank Miller in the early eighties is, um, there just, there became a more, a greater reality to everything. And yes, the effects are a huge part of it, but the way the quirks of these characters have just the casting is a big part of it too. Because truthfully, um, even before the first Iron Man, which is what really broke it out, the films worked, but they weren't, you know, they weren't that airtight. And even then, you can also see now how they still break. I mean, Fantastic Four, I still, I still mourn that not being right. But uh, yeah, it's it's tricky to put the finger on, but it's, the performances are are a huge part of it. I was never an Iron Man reader. I never really cared that much for Iron Man, but I have to say it was Downey's portrayal of him, the way Favreau directed it, the way Dan cut it. I mean, the sum of all those parts, and more importantly, Kevin Feige's vision for what is really the tone of Marvel to make the tone of the film, I think, is what really made that suddenly be the one to break out and to follow. Much the same way I respect the DC films for then going much more towards that kind of Dark Knight Returns Frank Miller, you know, tone. And I think tone is a big thing. I think it's something that's been gotten wrong all the time. We come out of the era of the Adam West Batman, which sure was entertaining as a kid, or even the Tim Robbins, or the the Tim Burton Batman, which, again, it it still always had a campiness to it, even though it was shot with, you know, with darker lighting, (laughs) you know. It's still, you watch us these days, and they're they're a little campy. They don't have that uh, grit and realism tone that I guess that that tone is what makes it work but yeah i mean it's it's kind of an impossible question to answer <laughs> i know that's um, it's just they like, definitely work a lot better now but then you know they're not flawless yeah oh no but it's it's like i think about some of the the batmans in the mid 90s and where they went and it's just crazy because it's similar material it's just i guess looked at differently by a different director well and yeah but even across those those were all directed by different people but i, I grouped them all the same it's just the tone of them Fine, maybe they have a dark look, but they have very cartoony characters. Yeah. Everybody's so black and white, and it's, it's not, it's boring, you know? You want more inner conflict, it's more dynamic. And I think the tone of the movies is, is, is doing much better. Plus also, you know, times. You didn't need that on-screen hero in the 90s, you know? Now you're in a September 11th world, and people want escapism. People want larger-than-life heroes that can figure out how to save tons of people and beat up any other kind of bad guy. I mean, you you want that 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 heroic image more than you've ever wanted it before. And that, that probably is a lot of the groundwork for that, too. What about in terms of, you know, as you, you had mentioned, there's like a lot of effects and, and what have you. And if you're building a scene or even multiple, you know, building a structure for a couple scenes and changing the pacing throughout the various scenes. How do you work with the footage if you're missing sections? So, you know, like when I'm watching Thor, there's whole moments or whole scenes where it would probably just say VFX here or have animatics. So how do you work pacing when you don't have the material? Look, you always start with story. 
and it doesn't matter if you're staring at nothing. What is the scene about? What are we trying to say? Who's saying? And look for the performance within that when you do have the actors. But otherwise, once you've got that down, yes, sometimes I'm putting slates on the screen. Sometimes I'll steal something off the internet and throw it on the screen. <laughs> we, you know, thankfully on, on the Marvel films, or like right now I'm helping on Alice in Wonderland 2, we have a great previous post this team so they can go and generate at least a video game looking version of what we don't see. Um, there's nothing wrong with storyboard. You know, subtitles when you need to, just throw them on the screen if, if you feel that it's a line that helps get the story right. I mean, the thing is, is it is a creative playground, uh, more so than when you have practical, conventional footage. I mean, you have to know to not go too far and not try to reinvent everything past what it is because you can. But yeah, it is a it is a certain headspace. One headspace is, yes, you're imagining a lot of stuff the whole time. The other thing, though, is you really have to make sure that you're never losing your actors, your stories, and your performance within all that spectacle. Anything that's there just for the sake of it looking cool usually shouldn't be in the film. Uh, every every cool shot has to have a story element to it. But it's interesting, like, you're, like working with Dan... You know, he, he's very good at thinking out of the box as well. And we would create bins for each other where it's like you can paint different pictures. He's like, oh, man, I got this scene that's really working well, but I wish Thor was in. And I'm like, well, where do you want Thor to be? And he's like, well, I guess he'd be back there. I'm like, oh, I know an angle for that. You know, and I take the shot and I can put Thor in there. <laughs> you know, you, 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 and, you know, likewise, there's scenes where it's like, oh, it'd be really great if, you know, if Natalie Portman, if, you know, if, if you know, Jane Foster was tracking this moment and it's like, you know, you should take this shot. We're not using this. It's just her peering around the corner around blue. And it's like, oh, well, now she's part of that scene. So you have creative tools that are just very unique to this type of filmmaking where you can really, you can expand and accentuate things, but you have to really look outside the box and know that anything can be used in a completely different way. It's crazy. It sounds like because of things like green screen and the VFX, you, it actually opens you up to more because the character's no longer in a room in a sense. They're, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I literally have a tiny little scene on the screen right now. It's just a blip in, in this in this second Alice, but we were looking at it, I was looking at it with Andy Weissbaum, the, the main editor of this film, and uh, we're like, yeah, but it would be so much better if they were in this place, and it's like, okay, well, we just changed all the backgrounds, and now they're in that other place. Same footage, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, so, so you, yeah, you have, a, you have a creativity that's above and beyond. And, and that's the other thing I liked about Marvel, too, is, you know, if you have an idea for something, you, you can kind of go through several stages of pitching it. Like, you explain it, they're like, oh, that could be cool. So you get a storyboard artist, show them the boards. Oh, yeah, that's working. Then you put it into previs, then post his, and then if they have to shoot anything, they add that. But it's it's great that uh, you can just constantly be creating and throwing, you know, you have twice as much idea time, I guess with green and blue green. But you can't let it get out of hand because somebody has to pay for it at some point. And, and the effects people need enough time. You know, you, unfortunately, and all all of the comic book editors are guilty of it. I mean, we're always trying to fix and create things in the 11th hour that help the overall film that does not allow effects any time to get it done and looking up to stuff. And, uh, you know, that's a trade-off. You know, you've been really generous with your time, so I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. And it's one I ask all the editors, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, a guilty pleasure film? Yeah. That's tricky. Uh, Because a guilty pleasure could be something like, you know, like watching Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, I'm I'm very uh, kind on films. I I just love going to movies. I don't watch TV much as I watch movies, so uh, I'm pretty forgiving. Um, that's one that came to mind, so I'll, I'll throw that out there, although I'm sure there's ones I'm far guiltier of, like, say, My Love's Fire or something like that. Mannequin. How about we say mannequin? <laughs> Perfect. 
That's perfect. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interview. Thank you, Gordon. So that was my interview with Wyatt. Wyatt's a great guy. I was excited to hear that he was into comics because I was really into comics growing up. And it's just, it's fantastic to have someone who cares so much about comics working on these films that we all love. So I want to thank Wyatt for joining me. And of course, if you have anything post-production related, make sure to submit it at AOTG.com or use our browser plugins, AOTG.com slash plugins. Uh, I'd also like to suggest you join our Twitter account at AOTG Network, Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. And of course, you can always join the discussion at AOTG Network slash discuss. Make sure to join us next week for the Drunk History Podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.